Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Thanks for joining us on uh, another episode here, and we're going to continue with our discussion of the waterfowl uh, harvest estimation, and again, with our two very special guests, Dr. Kathy Fleming and Dr. Paul Padding. We've, in previous episodes, touched on the history of waterfowl harvest estimation. We, in, in, the most, in the last episode, we got into the harvest information program, what it is, and talked about the questions that people are asked when they're at these points of sale and, and, uh, and buying their license, whether you do that you know, in a in a store or whether you do that online, the importance of that, how that data is used. But now we want to talk about the actual surveys, the information, the questions that people are asked uh, and, uh, and and other other details of participation rate and other things that we're seeing. And then importantly, we'll kind of wrap up some of our discussion about um, what we're seeing or, or some changes that are that might be on the on the horizon for the harvest estimation process. So with that bit of introduction, Kathy and Paul. Thanks again for uh, for sharing your time and expertise. Welcome back to the show. Sure. Thank you. And Kathy, we're going to pick up with you. We concluded the previous episode uh, having talked about the stratification of, of our hunters through this HIP certification. So let's jump right in to the selection uh, for participating in the diary survey. Let's start there. Uh, I'm just going to I'll lead off with a simple question here. How many people are we selecting out of all those that uh, that are in this pool? Well, for waterfowl, we're selecting about 105,000 each year. Um, for all the surveys combined, it's a little over 200,000. Yeah, and that, that's across all states? Yeah. Well, all states except for Hawaii. Okay. Now, at that state level, after we've uh, – do you, do you stratify – uh, by state, I can't remember if we've discussed this yet. Do we? Is it just random across all the the – the, the people in the survey frame, or is there some stratification by state? So there is, well, we do the estimates separately for each state. So we consider each state to have its own sample. And we sample at a different rate um, for some states than for others. So we don't all just sample across the board the same rate. And the reason for that is because some states have a huge number of hunters, and some states don't have that many. And we still need to reach target Rate sample sizes so that we can ensure that we have, you know, a, a good level of precision on the estimate. So, um, an example might be that, it, you know, in a small state, you might get a survey like every other year or maybe even every year. And you'd be thinking like, wow, you know, why am I getting surveyed every year? This is just a sample of all these, you know, there's 3.8 million hunters. Why am I getting a survey every year? And then in other large states or states with a large number of hunters, you may never be sampled. And it's just because we are only sampling at a smaller rate there. We don't need to get as many, uh, to get as many surveys back. And actually, you know, as Paul mentioned, um, in recent years, uh, not only have the number of hunters declined, but response rates have declined somewhat. And so we are forced to sample, you know, at higher rates in order to be able to get that target number of samples. But it's not, it's not the same in every state. Um, I think, you know, we sample groups of states based on the number of hunters um, at the same level. We don't have an independent sampling rate for, you know, 49 different states. 
Kathy, do you know offhand what that participation rate is? Uh, you know, for example, for every hundred every one hundred re requests to participate in the survey, how many uh, participants do you get back? People respond affirmatively. Yeah, it varies from survey to survey type. So, um, for I think uh, Woodcock might be our highest participation rate is somewhere in the forties. Wow. Um, but overall, overall, it's about thirty-five to forty percent. Okay, so 35 to 40%. Now, is that, I'll, I'll use the word, I don't know if it's, a, if it's the correct word, but is, is that an acceptable rate or is that a desirable rate? What would you really like it to be? Because, you know, 100%, that's not realistic, right? So what would you be Oh, I know, but I'd with? still love it to be 100%. <laughs> that would be great. But, but realistically, what would, be, what would be a target rate for you? Well, you know, I think we're, we're sampling so that that response rate is sufficient to get precision. Now, the precision that we're targeting, though, is not on the state level per se. It's at the flyway level um, or management unit for some species. So um, that's where we're trying to hit that um, that target level of precision. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to hit it on in every state. But um, that's the, the response rate that we're assuming we have when we set out to sample at the sample rates that we use. And I don't know if Paul, uh, if you can speak to what the the sampling rates or the, what the response rates used to be. Um, I, I'm just not familiar. Uh, sure. Um, and for the harvest information program uh, uh, surveys, once we switched over to that system in uh, the late 90s and, and early 2000s, um, even up to around 2006 or so maybe, uh, Typically, where our response rate was 55 to 60 percent, and as far as a desired response rate, I, I, you, as you said, Mike, 100 percent is unrealistic. But uh, 70 percent, 80 percent would be nice. <laughs> It'd be great. Yeah, and the greater the response rate, the the greater the confidence we have in our estimation. That's uh, that, that's ultimately where we get our payoff by a higher uh, response rate, right? Yeah, and that's. And also the fewer number of surveys we have to send out that end up in the trash. Okay, so let's talk about the mechanics of this. How are uh, survey participants, uh, maybe I shouldn't say participants, but how are people, uh, HIP-certified individuals, notified of the request to participate? So uh, the main way that we do it, although this is changing, is by sending out a paper letter in the mail, the postal mail, um, with a survey form. And... Uh, we use the address that's provided by the states, and we send them out with the instructions in the letter and also a self-addressed return envelope. If they don't respond, we send them out a postcard, and if they don't respond after that, we send them out another survey form, and if they don't respond after that, we send them out a third survey form. And now, now one thing that I, that I know is that as we go through a hunting season, uh, you know, hunters acquire their license at different times through the season. It's not as though everybody that's going to hunt waterfowl during a given year has their license in hand and their HIP certification in hand on October 1st. It doesn't work that way. Some people don't, uh, don't get their license until, let's say, the middle of January, right? Because maybe they're, they're going to take off work the last week of January, and that's when they always duck hunt or waterfowl hunt. Uh, how do you accommodate that in your selection of, of in your sampling of individuals to participate you know where you have people that are that are becoming hip certified at different times throughout the hunting season yeah that's so the way we do that is we actually receive uh, every two weeks we receive new data files from the states 
and we select a sample um, from that from the data files we receive in that time period, and we send out a sample of survey. So, you know, if you were hunting and then you found out you were, you know, going to go to to Louisiana and and hunt, and you didn't know about it, and you sign up to register for HIP in December, then you might receive a survey, you know, probably two or three weeks later. And that enables us to catch those people who are registering late. Um, it, it depends on getting the, state, the data in a timely manner from the states. For, for the most part, we do. Um, and then us being able to turn that around. So we're very busy during the hunting season because we're sampling every two weeks. And then we are sending out survey forms. And then we're also sending out every two weeks reminders on those survey forms for people who haven't responded. I'm going to get down in the weeds here with this particular question, but let's say, okay, the, the first set of, of data comes in from the states and you draw a sample from those, uh, from the people in that, in that data file. So that first data file, do you then set it aside? Do you no longer draw from that data, si data file with each kind of subsequent pull uh, of the, of the hip uh, registrants, or do those people always kind of stay in the pool and, and you're just gradually growing the pool as you go through the season? And the reason I'm asking is I'm just kind of thinking about, all right, let's say somebody bought their license uh, a week before the opening of the hunting season, but they weren't drawn to participate until the last week of the season, then that requires them to kind of think back all the way to the beginning of the season to uh, to, to remember what they harvested. How's that work out? Yeah, so that's exactly the situation we don't want to have happen. And so um, that's why we do this every two week rolling sampling. But no, once there, once we get the, um, the name and address in that, uh, download or that, um, sampling period, um, if they're not sampled, then we don't go back and sample them again. Now the only difference is, and this, uh, this is also getting down in the weeds, is that we also do some permit surveys. So, for example, cranes um, or maybe band-tailed pigeons. So someone might register for HIP and then later on decide that they're going to go hunting band-tailed pigeons, for example, and they'll go get a permit, and then we'll get their name again. And so even though they they register for HIP before the hunting season, we don't get their name for band-tailed pigeons until, you know, well, actually that's an early season too. But So we don't sample them until for band-tailed pigeons until they show up as a permit. Uh, permit holder for that species. So the from time to time there are delays, uh, either the state delays, you know, for whatever reason, um, we don't get the data in a timely fashion, and sometimes there are delays on our end. And when that happens, a hunter might receive a survey later in the year, and that's very unfortunate because uh, it's very difficult, I'm sure, for a lot of people to remember exactly what day and what county how many birds they shot, but we also allow them to just enter the season totals. So if at least they can come up with the number of birds that they shot um, for that that survey. Um, they don't have to provide the county level detail, and we'll take that information as well. If I'm not mistaken, in, in some recent years, the federal government's uh, lapse of funding, uh, commonly known as the shutdown, has kind of thrown a wrench into some of this, right? Well, last year, yes. Uh, last year we were delayed. We had two two actual delays, uh, which were unfortunate because they happened at the same time. 
we had the furlough, and then we also had um, had to switch to a new printing contractor. And it took the printing contractor about a month to get up to speed, and that happened right after the furlough, right after we got back. Um, so in that case, we were sampling people later. And and from time to time, we have had these, you know, in, in individual states, delays or things that have happened when they switched over to new contractors. And it's unfortunate. And um, and I actually have to say the hunters were very helpful last year in sending us, you know, and a lot of detailed records, too, but sending us their season totals despite the lateness of us getting out the surveys. Well, that's very good to hear. Uh, good for you, hunters. You're to be commended. And, uh, okay, so, so as a reminder here, we're talking, uh, I think, about the, well, uh, yeah, we're talking about the diary survey. Um, so uh, once we're notified of that, uh, you've kind of alluded to this, but what all, we've touched on certain parts of that, but what all information is re requested, it's more than just how many ducks and how many geese you harvested. Uh, what else is, are, are they requested to provide? Well, it's called a diary because we are asking them to keep a log, a running log of the days that they hunted. So that would be the hunting date, the county that they hunted in, and then the number of birds killed and retrieved, and also the number of birds that they knocked down but they couldn't retrieve. And that's asked, depending upon the survey, that would be asked for each group of species. So for the waterfowl survey, um, depending on the state, because some states don't have sea ducks and brant, but if they do, you'd be asked to provide that information for for ducks, sea ducks, geese, and brant. And then for other, spe other species surveys like woodcock, they're just asking for the number of woodcocks. Uh, that, that information on the number of days they hunt or their, you know, their, their log of, of days hunted, all of that eventually gets rolled up into some other uh, statistics that can be found in that annual report. Maybe we'll touch on that here a bit later on, but it uh, gives us an idea of hunter effort, number of days of field. And so that's another important metric for sort of tracking hunter participation uh, and, and hunter effort. And so that's just, it's always interesting and useful to see uh, see what those trends are doing, uh, especially as, as we had Dale Humberg on talking about uh, um, the decline in waterfowl hunter numbers. And uh, and that goes goes beyond just that, just uh, goes beyond just hunter numbers, but also their, the degree to which they're getting out and they're participating and, uh, and hunting waterfowl. So there's uh, other pieces of important information ob obtained from that. Okay, so you get all these, these surveys go out, and then you get them back. And is there a deadline by which they need to be returned? Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure there is. There comes a point at which you have to kind of cut off the um, – you have to finalize the data because then you have to do the analysis of the data, right? Right. Yeah, so there is a date that we cut it off, and we try to wait as long as possible. Um, because we understand that, you know, some of the season, the last um, remaining hunters, you know, takes them a little while to finish up hunting and summarize their hunt and hunting information and send it to us. Um, we usually cut it off. Well, it depends from year to year. Like last year, because of the delay, we we cut it off a lot later than um, than we usually do. But we need time to clean the data, to assemble it to do checks on the data for data quality, and then also to, to combine the information to create the harvest estimates. And we're doing this within a regulation cycle that I, don't, I won't really get into, unless you're interested. It's a lot of details. But um, So we have this annual regulation cycle because these, this information is used to make decisions. It feeds into some of our population models. 
And those population models are going to tell us, you know, if the harvest, not only if the harvest is sustainable, but also what is the level of harvest that that's, that uh, population can support. And that feeds to the decisions we make each year about hunting regulations, season length and bag limits. So that all has to happen within a, a relatively tight time frame um, from the harvest season ending, you know, in in late winter to publishing the estimates, um, finishing them and publishing them by August. And then they have to be used to make those decisions shortly thereafter. It's no small task. I can guarantee you that. I've never been uh, involved in that process firsthand, but uh, I guarantee you, you have your hands full uh, getting all the information uh, assembled, summarized, and uh, and then out for use in, in all the ways that it uh, that it is used. So it keeps you busy. I, I know there are certain times where I, I try to get in touch with you and you simply have to tell me, Mike, I just don't have time right now. And so, okay, Kathy. <laughs> It's understandable. I never say that. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy, is there anything else? So, uh, again, diary survey that we've been talking about here. Anything else on that that we need to cover before we move on to the parts collection survey? Well, actually, yes. I would like to just mention um, some changes that have happened in the last couple of years here, and I want people to know about them. So, um, if you don't mind, uh, we do have a new online version of our diary survey that we implemented this year. Uh, we actually did some testing of it with hunters last year, um, but at, at, a, at a very small scale. And so this year has been the first year that we have been sending out invitations both by email and by paper letter um, in the postal mail, asking people to participate by going to the website and creating an account, logging in, and entering their hunting information that way. And so far, it's been working out pretty good. We're still working out some of the bugs. Um, this year, we focused on waterfowl and uh, did primarily surveying for waterfowl and then uh, at a smaller rate did some of the other species. Uh, next year, we're going to have a much larger um, sample uh, invited to do the online survey. And we're pretty excited about it. We put a lot of hard work into it, and uh, we hope it's going to be a lot easier for hunters to navigate. Um, at least they don't have to find a stamp and, or they don't have to find a stamp anyway, but at least they don't have to like find the envelope and put it in the mailbox, which for me is very challenging. So, um, it might be a little bit easier for people to participate that way. Yeah. As trivial as it sounds, uh, actually dropping a letter in the mail has become a bit of an archaic process. Uh, so no, going digital makes a lot of sense. Uh, question uh, in regard to that, uh, have you developed any type of app, like a mobile app, uh, within which within which this survey is nested? Or you, have you thought about that? Or is it just not worth the effort at this time? Well, we've thought about it. We don't have an app per se. We tried to do the next best thing, which is that it is fully um, uh, fully mobile enabled. So and you can use your smartphone. You can go out, you know, in your hunting blind. As soon as you shoot your duck, you can get online and, and enter it in your hunting log. Um, we also allow you to um, or provide instructions on adding an icon to the smartphone, you know, to your smartphone so that you can access it, you know, without having to go through your browser. And then the other thing that we did to try to make it a little bit more interesting or maybe useful to hunters is that you can, at the end of the season, download as a PDF or an Excel spreadsheet the history of your hunt. 
So we're, you know, all the information that I was talking about, um, so that you can keep record of it and you can add comments. You know, we don't, we don't use the comments for anything. They're for your use. But if you want to, you know, put in comments about your favorite hunting spot or, which probably no one will <laughs> want to do online, but, right. um, or information about the services. weather. That's right. That's right. Um, just to make it a little bit more interesting and user friendly. So, uh, we might be doing an app in the future. We haven't ruled anything out. Um, but this is, you know, this is kind of our first, um, first fully functioning version. Okay. So, Paul, I want to go to you now and ask about the parts collection survey, the wing survey. And let's just sort of start at the top. There's maybe a slight nuance here different from the diary survey, but basically, how are people selected for, to participate in the, uh, in, in the parts collection survey? There's, Three different possibilities. The the first one is that where we get most of our participants is from people who answered, who responded to the diary survey the previous year and who reported shooting at least one duck or goose. We don't want to ask somebody to participate in a wing survey if they don't kill anything. So um, so a sample of those people are are asked to participate in the wing survey. And, and in a number of states, we ask them all. Uh, all of the respondents who, who shot at least one duck or goose to participate in the wing survey. Um, a second source is because we typically can't get enough people to participate just from that, we ask people who participated in the wing survey the previous year to go again. And we'll ask them to, we'll ask them to participate for up to three years before we rotate them out. And then, and, and for a few states, we still, typically these are key states, a, a state like Texas or North Carolina, where, where there, there's a, a lot of harvest and, um, it's, it's a key harvest state to get a, a good species composition estimates for. And we have a difficult time getting enough people in the part survey. So when that happens, um, we, Typically, we'll take just a, a, a sample from the Harvest Information Program name and address list of the people who said, when they, when they were asked, how many ducks did you shoot last year? They said, well, I shot, uh, I shot some, either some or a bunch in, in one of those two categories. So we'll take a random sample of them and ask them to participate. Typically, when you just ask them out of the blue like that, um, it's a it's a it's a very low response rate. Whereas the response rates of people who have already participated in a diary survey the year before are quite a bit higher. And likewise, someone who participated in the wing survey the year before is quite likely to want to participate again. I guess two questions here. What do you see in terms of a response rate for participating in this in the wing survey, and also uh, how many? people, what's, uh, how many people do you get participating? So the rate and then the total number. And then how does that remind me on how that would compare to the diary survey? Let me start out with a, the second part first. Um, we we want to get, uh, <laughs> we, we want to get somewhere on the, in the vicinity of about 110,000 parts total. Um, for, because that's how many, how many wings and goose, goose parts we can process in a one-week wing bee at all four at all four wing bee sites combined. So 110,000 parts is about the goal. 
then you back up from that and figure out about how many parts you can expect for participant. You back it up and, and, and we end up trying to get between six and 8,000 people to participate in that wing survey every year. So that, and, and that, that compares to, uh, Kathy, I believe, said they're surveying about 105,000 waterfowl hunters for the diary survey every year and get a 35%, 35 to 40% response. So 35 or 40,000 there compared to six or seven, six or 8,000 in in the parts survey. Um, the, the willingness to participate really varies by which category you're talking about. People who participated in the wing survey the year before, typically their willingness to do it again is uh, 60-65%. Um, for people who participated in the diary survey the year before, it's lower. Um, it's more like around uh, 30 to 40 percent. So, yeah, 30 to 40 is, is typically the range. And then those people in the last category that we just sort of, it's analogous to cold calling people on the phone. You just send them a letter saying, hey, would you like to do this? Um, that response rate is very low, typically less than 10 percent. We've touched on this also, but when someone gets a request to participate in the survey and they indicate or they decide, yes, I'm going to participate in the, in the survey, what are they asked to uh, what are they asked to do? What are, what are they sending in and how do they go about that? Well, when when they agree to participate, uh, uh, the letter that they get asking them to participate asks them about how many ducks and geese they usually shoot in a season. And, and so the, uh, so let's say 100 tells you 50. So when we get that response, we send that person 50 wing envelopes before the start of the, the hunting season. And, and typically, it's we try to get them to them before September 1st, which is when a lot of goose seasons and September teal seasons open. So um, and, and then the instructions on what we want them to do are in there. We want them to cut one wing off of each, each duck you shoot and put a single wing in an envelope. Uh, for geese, we want them to pull out the goose tail feathers and cut the tips of the primary feathers off. And the the instructions are are written on the envelope and and uh, in, a, in an insert that we put in there. And then we ask them to to mail them in as as quick as they can. Um, you know, if you especially when it's warm out in the south, if you let wings sit around for a week or so before you mail them in, they start to stink and. The Postal Service doesn't like us very much when that happens. Yeah, if my typical co-host was here, I'm pretty sure he would bring up the uh, uh, the furlough last year when I think he had a collection of wings. He had been asked to participate in the survey, and he had a collection of wings hanging around his house, and he needed additional envelopes, and he couldn't get in touch with anyone because y'all were on furlough. And uh, I don't think his wife was too impressed by the the, the duck wings that were starting to stink up the garage. <laughs> so, uh, um, all right, so one thing that I did not – I didn't realize, I guess, is that uh, a distinction here between the diary survey, which we talked about previously, and now the wing survey, is that you're you're asking for participation prior to the start of the hunting season, and whereas in the diary survey, you're asking for participation and sending out these requests for participation as the hunting season unfolds. Do I understand that correctly? That's right. Um, for for the wing survey, because of the way the sample is drawn. We're able to 
ask them uh, whether they're willing to participate. I think, Kathy, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think they typically, uh, Kathy's folks typically send that request out in the mail in June. Uh, yes. Goes on in June. So by by early August, they they know all who who's going to participate, and that enables them to get these packages of wing envelopes um, ready and and out in the mail, so that they get to people before September first or right around September first. Mm-hmm. Kathy, I want to go to you now uh, with a couple of other questions here, and I don't want us to get into too much detail on this because it might bleed over into a discussion about really what happens at the wing bee surveys that uh, that Paul has already referenced. And I want to hold that for a future episode where we can really talk about the details of that, but I, I it is going to be important to just talk at a high level about a couple of these things here. So tell us, uh, people are sending in all these wings what happens to those wings? Where do y'all store those? And then what's the process by which they then go out to the different wing bees? Uh, where and which we'll touch on that here in a minute. What's that process look like for y'all? Okay, well, uh, we have four different sites where wings are sent. So if a hunter looks on his envelope, he's going to see you know one of four places representing each of the flyways. And so um, the the wing envelopes are delivered from. The post office to us, we have a freezer at each location. They're stored in the freezer. We also have a, someone called a speciator, and that's a, a biotechnician or biologist who uh, is responsible for entering the information into our database about wings that we receive in the mail and also speciating them, so determining what species they are. And then they just uh, stay in the freezers until we're ready to use them, and that is uh, what the wing bee is all about. And then I would also add that, we, you know, even after we use them and we get all the information we need, uh, we don't usually just toss them in the trash. Uh, there's a lot of people who use them for educational purposes, law enforcement training. And so um, one of the roles of the speciator is to assemble some collections and send them out to people to use. And uh, we've also been participating in genetic studies. Uh, scientists are able to extract genetic material from wings to look at DNA analysis and, and some other interesting um, research projects. But the wing bee is a collection at each flyway. They hold a wing bee in February where all the wings that have been submitted for that flyway are examined. Um, the people who attend the wing bee are a combination of our state agency partners, uh, usually biologists or law enforcement, um, Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, not just migratory birds people, but we also get people from outside the program. Um, and they all come together and they sometimes they speciate and sometimes the speciator has already determined the species of all the wings. And they're still in envelopes, but they're given to the biologist who then sex and age the wing. So they they might know already what the species are, but they're responsible for what's a lot more difficult um, is to tell what sex the the bird it, the bird is and also um, if it's a young bird or an adult. I didn't realize that you had the the speciator was then that, that person is basically expedites the process that uh, that I assumed all occurred at the 
uh, at the wing bead, but it sounds like some of that occurs in advance. And I'm sure whenever the biologists pull out the wings, they see a species label on the on the envelope. They you know kind of instantly validate that and make sure it is what it you know, what the other person has said occurs. But um, but yeah, that's um, yeah. So we get species, age, and sex of each of those wings, and then tell us how that uh, that information is is used to sort of play this out. We've kind of got the diary survey, now we've got the wing survey. And so sort of play that out and how those are combined to use. Okay. So the, so a hunter is, um, is sending in a wing from every bird that they shoot. And so we're using that to, first of all, to identify the composition of the harvest. So for waterfowl, we have a duck harvest estimate, but we're going to be able to, um, separate out that harvest estimate and allocate it to different species based on the composition of the wings submitted. Um, so that's that's one important aspect of how it's used. But the age and sex information is also really important. So we're able to get an understanding or information on the sex ratio of the harvest. So the you know proportion of males to females in the harvest, and also the proportion of adults to young. And uh, one really important use of that is it gives us an estimate of the annual production in that population. So the number of young that are produced and survive, you know, to be recruited into the population um, for that year. And it takes a couple other pieces of information to get that, but that's the basis for that is the proportion of the number of young to the number of, of adults in the PCS in the parts collection survey. And then the combination of all that information is how that whenever you, if any of our listeners wants to go and download one of those um, the waterfowl harvest estimate report. You will have for each state. You will have an estimate of the number of birds harvested by species, and it's uh, a product, if you will, of all these different pieces of information. The diary survey, which is just sort of overall, how many birds did you uh, did you shoot, and then you use the, the parts collection or wing survey to partition out that total number into the different species down at those. Uh, state levels, and then as you've mentioned, also behind the scenes, you have that information at uh, at county level as well. But that's not it's not included in that uh, in that report. So there's a lot of pieces to that, and I would venture to guess that a lot of our listeners, even some of those that have participated in certain aspects of the survey, um, weren't aware or weren't uh, weren't completely aware of all the different pieces there. So uh, certainly appreciate y'all sharing your expertise and helping to explain a lot of this. Some of it was, was fairly detailed. And uh, I I know I want to give you a chance, Kathy, to talk about uh, future changes on the horizon. You've talked about some of those already, but I want to make sure there aren't any others that you want to talk about. But before we do that, in kind of wrapping up this harvest estimation process and the importance of hunter participation, any uh, sort of final thoughts on that matter that you want to share? Or, or Paul, you you as well, but Kathy, I'll start with you. No, again, you know, not to, um, you know, repeat myself, but uh, we really rely on hunter participation to make this whole process work. And that is in the back of our mind when we are thinking about ways to make the survey better. Um, one of the most important things is, you know, making sure hunters understand how important this information is. And um, I didn't mention this before, but um, one of the things that we are actively working on right now is to provide the hunter uh, on our online site 
with some tools that they can look at to visualize harvest, um, the information that they think is valuable about harvest. And for a lot of people, they want to know, you know, their state harvest and how that's changed and maybe how harvest changes throughout the season. And so we've put together some tools that you can link from the main page um, that will show um, a hunter. They can query, you know, look up the information from their county, for example. Um, and that's just one part, and we're, we're trying to think about ways to, to make that work better in the future so that hunters understand the importance of their participation and how it's linked to the actual information. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll have to go to your website and, and check that out. Um, and and so, Paul, any any uh, thing from you? Uh, the kind of closing comments on this whole overall uh, estimation process. Uh, we've got a few other questions we want to touch on, but um, anything else from you right now? No, at, at at the risk of infuriating some listeners, I'll, I'll nag a little bit about the wing survey, if I may. Um, and I would ask your listeners that if you get selected for that survey and agree to participate. It's really important to follow the instructions on the wing envelopes. Like for goose parts, we only want the tail feathers and the tips of the primary feathers, not the entire rear end of the goose, which is convenient to do, but not what we want. Uh, and I'll tell you why in a minute. And, and we also don't want all or most of the, the wing. On, on goose butts, goose rear ends, that the oil gland there will leak, uh, and stain the wing envelope and other mail the envelope touches. And the Postal Service just hates that. And a goose wing is too big for the envelope and it jams up Postal Service mail processing equipment. So they hate that too. And for ducks, we want the entire wing cut off right at the body, uh, but none of the body meat. Um, that that ends up giving us, uh, 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 it, it ends up leaking blood and that scares postal service workers sometimes it's uh, they feel like that's a, a health safety issue and and that too uh, makes the envelope too bulky for postal service equipment so from time to time the postal service has, has considered trying to shut down the wing survey because of these problems and uh, and that would really deprive us of a very important source of information so again i'm i'm sorry to nag but we really appreciate all the help that we get from hunters, and the great majority of them do exactly what we ask. But uh, please don't be one of the folks that give us goose butts. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and maybe to uh, to look at it from sort of a selfish perspective, by not by not handing in the entire goose butt and getting the the oil on the envelope, you may be preventing yourself or a fellow family member from actually receiving one of those pieces of mail that has been stained by the oil. So it actually could kind of come around to benefit you as well. So keep that in mind. Um, okay, Kathy, kind of big picture here. Any changes uh, on the horizon? I, I think you've referenced a couple of these, but anything else that uh, we want to talk about? Well, I mean, we've we've been – you know, talking for several years and before I took this position about um, some ways of modernizing the parts collection survey, for example, and, um, you know, there are some apps out there who that have been able to use machine learning and artificial intelligence to identify things like iNaturalist, well, you, you know, you can take a picture of a plant and it'll tell you what plant it is or an insect. And, um 
we haven't gotten very far with that, but it's certainly on the horizon. I think a lot of these things are becoming a lot more um, feasible as time goes on. Um, and that's just one I'm thinking of. We also, like I said, we have our online survey and we are definitely still in the improvement stage. And so we're going to be working on that for the next couple of years and just making sure that it's, you know, the the best thing we can do and easy to use and, you know, hopefully going to boost participation in the survey. All right. Well, we look forward to those and, and those apps, uh, you know, kind of image recognition apps. That's something that, uh, that I use on occasion and sure would be neat if we could incorporate that into uh, some of what we've talked about here today. And, and uh, like you said, we'll probably get there with each passing day, each passing year, it gets more feasible, but um, look forward to that becoming uh, uh, more likely. And I, I think we have a few final questions here. We're going to touch on these at a high level, just to sort of close the loop here. Uh, Paul, at the very beginning of this uh, on episode one, we talked about different types of waterfowl harvest. And then there's there's uh, two general categories here. We're talking about sport harvest. That's the primary uh, source of harvest uh, in North America. But there's also subsistence harvest. So, um, so number one, just... Briefly describe what do we mean by subsistence harvest? Where does that occur? And you know, do we have a method in place to try to estimate that? Well, in both Canada and Alaska, there are special provisions, special legal provisions for uh, Native Americans in those areas to take migratory birds for, for uh, food purposes at uh, various times of the year. Um, in the U.S., it only occurs in Alaska. There, uh, there is a, a harvest survey that's uh, specifically set up for that. It, uh, it's not exclusive to waterfowl, but it includes waterfowl. Canada has, um, has less of a, a, a comprehensive system for estimating subsistence harvest there. Um, they, uh, they're, they're Native American groups that uh, that engage in subsistence harvest are are much more scattered, smaller groups, and in remote areas, it's really tough for them to get a handle on it. So they 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 do have a pretty good idea of the general magnitude of it compared to sport harvest, but that's about as far as they could go. Uh, one final uh, question here on harvest estimation, and it relates to Canada and Mexico, uh, and I'll just offer that uh, we will. Uh, We'll probably have an opportunity in the future to uh, invite someone from the Canadian Wildlife uh, Service to come on and share with us some information about their harvest estimation process. But a sort of big picture again, Paul, what can you tell us uh, just uh, about uh, harvest estimation in Canada and Mexico? Canada has a harvest uh, survey system that's very similar to ours. They, they have a, a federal migratory bird permit that provides them with the names and addresses of all of their migratory bird hunters. That's their sample frame. They have a, a, a survey that they do by mail that's analogous to our diary survey that gives them their estimates of total duck harvest and total goose harvest. And they have what they call their species composition survey, which is the same as our wing survey um, that, uh, that gives them the same information that our wing survey does. So um, I believe that's been in place since uh, somewhere around 1967. Um, Mexico, to my knowledge, there are no um, uh, annual, there's certainly no annual. I don't think there's even periodic surveys of waterfowl harvest in Mexico. In fact, uh, 
Uh, to my knowledge, the last effort to estimate waterfowl harvest there was Gary Kramer's work about 30 years ago. And, uh, and that's, that's the work that I mentioned when I said that, or I think it was Kathy actually that said that, uh, the harvest, uh, duck harvest in Mexico probably doesn't exceed a hundred thousand. Well, thanks for that little summary there, Paul. Uh, this, this brings us to the conclusion of a, a very informative discussion. It's, uh, as we've, as we've, discovered a couple of times a very complex subject at times. It's a very important uh, data set that's, uh, that's collected. And, you know, we, it's difficult to, or it's impossible to overemphasize the importance of hunters throughout this process at every stage, whether it be answering the questions as part of the Harvest Information Program certification, HIP certification at the points of sales when you're getting your license, uh, whether it be uh, participating in the diary survey or the uh, or the or the wing survey, parts collection survey, all of those elements of participation by the hunters are absolutely critical to collecting this information, allowing it to be analyzed. And w- as we've emphasized from the very beginning, at the at the foundation of all this, uh, the information collected helps ensure that we're making wise decisions about the, the harvest of these resources and ensuring that those harvest regulations are commensurate with what the populations can sustain and helps us um, just helps us be smart about. Uh, the, de- the decisions that we're making and ensuring that we can continue to harvest and enjoy these uh, these uh, populations for, for generations to come. It's not enough to just kind of think about how we benefit from it, but we have to think about our obligation to, uh, to, to ensure that it, it carries on into the future. And we really think about that in every aspect of this enterprise, whether it be harvest regulation or habitat conservation. Uh, all of what we do as hunters and conservations is part of a, of a bigger picture, and it's really important that we uh, recognize our role and be active participants um, in that process. So, uh, Kathy, I, I want to throw it to you here for any final comments and, and at least so that you can uh, in, inform our listeners of where they can learn more uh, about uh, this process, where they can find the data, where they can find the reports, anything of that nature. Probably the easiest thing to do is just go to www.fws.gov and then scroll down the left-hand side till you see migratory birds. And that puts you on our Migratory Bird website. And across the top, you'll see um, publications, reports. You can just click on the menu and it'll show you everything. And um, not only do we have our harvest report on there, but also our population status reports for all the different species that we survey. We just want to thank all the hunters who have participated in the survey. It's a, we understand the commitment and we're very appreciative. We couldn't do it without you. That's why we exist here is to create harvest is to be able to create harvest estimates from the information that you provide. So I hope that we've been able to emphasize how important your contribution is, and we really like to see you keep participating, especially with our new online survey, um, which we'll be, uh, we'll be sending out invitations for next year. Kathy and Paul, thank you again so very much for your time, for the extensive conversations, and for the important work that you do as as public servants uh, of our great country. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. A very special thanks to our guests on today's show, Dr. Kathy Fleming and Dr. Paul Padding. We've had them on now for three consecutive episodes, episodes, and they've shared uh, a great deal of information, all their expertise on waterfowl harvest estimation in the U.S. Thank you hunters out there that have participated in these surveys, and we encourage your continued participation. 
We thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does in getting the podcast out to you. And to you, our listeners, we thank you for tuning in and sharing your time with us. And we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.